Serb Alper in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. In this edition of Fangraphs Audio, we catch up with our managing editor, Dave Cameron, who after spending a week in Breckenridge, Colorado, has somehow found himself in Baltimore, Maryland. We learn what's gotten Cameron to Baltimore, what brought him to Breckenridge before that, and then proceed to some official baseballing analysis. As part of said analysis, we look at the Boston Red Sox compensation package for Theo Epstein and consider if trading for GMs might become a trend. We look at a pair of newly signed DH types in Raul Abanez and Manny Ramirez. Consider the prospect status of Cincinnati Reds minor league shortstop Billy Hamilton, looking specifically at what prospects with plus speed end up doing in the majors. And finally, Cameron examines the A.J. Burnett trade, That's the trade that sent Yankees right-hander A.J. Burnett to the Pirates in exchange for two minor leaguers. Does the deal make sense for both clubs? Cameron answers that question. And, of course, he answers a number of other questions on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which begins right now. Right. I mean, what's the what's their old neighborhood like? Do they have any access to that? Or uh, so I have actually never seen the home they grew up in. Uh, I don't know. This may not make for like super uh, happy podcast news, but my father, or my grandfather, was murdered uh, when my mom was 19 here in Baltimore. Oh my and, god, that's um, horrible. Yeah, it wasn't the best. So, uh, um, so I have never seen the family home, and I don't think it's like great memories for most of them. So they're not like, hey, let's have a tour of the home where our father got murdered. Oh, God, that's miserable. Yeah. Actually, one of my cousins has uh, made a documentary. She's a filmmaker, and she's made a documentary about how the, uh, the their father's murder has affected each one of the 13 siblings. And I'm actually really interested in seeing it because this isn't something that my mom talked about a lot growing up. And, um, you know, I don't have that many uh, stories <laughs> of him or uh, understanding of what my parents uh family life was like growing up, and so to me, the documentary could be super interesting, and uh, I look forward to it getting produced. I think it's still in the funding stage, but it's shot, and it just needs to get, uh, you know, money so they can yeah, that's, uh, put it in theaters. <laughs> that's interesting. That actually, it makes sense that that would sort of be one of, um, like, it would certainly be a story that the younger generation would be interested in learning about and telling, um, Right. probably specifically because the generation right above that wouldn't wouldn't really want to talk about it as much. Yeah, there's a trailer for the documentary where they show, like, the reactions to all of my 13 aunts and uncles, or 12, I guess, aunts and uncles, uh, as they um, get asked, you know, what their reaction was like when their father got killed. And, I mean, just the profound sadness. You can see, like, 50 years later, this is still dramatically affecting them all. And, uh, you know, so it's... um, Obviously, something that they don't love talking about, but for our generation, it is, uh, you know, it holds some interest for me. Right. Well, let's talk about, uh, but, but now before you were in Baltimore briefly, and, and we'll definitely get to baseball stuff momentarily, uh, but let's do some ads uh, on behalf of, uh, uh, I guess, um, sort of benefit, uh, things that might benefit people uh, with cancer or, or, um, or who have been treated uh, for cancer. And so you were in Breckenridge uh, with, uh, for what program? 
So there's an organization called the Domus Pashas Family Respite. It's a, those are Greek words meaning that I think like uh, happy uh, life or something along those lines. Um, but it's a Catholic organization. Um, I believe it's a Catholic organization anyway uh, that um, has set up vacation timeshare donations. So people who are not going to use their uh, Colorado timeshare or vacation homes or whatever uh, can donate their lodging um, to people who are recovering from cancer or who have had a tough medical uh, go in the, in the recent past and they can take their families and kind of have a getaway. And so the organization set us up with a place to stay on the mountain in Breckenridge for a week and got us lift tickets for a week, which is, uh, you know, no small feat. Those are pretty expensive. Um, got us rentals, got us food, um, got us uh, people bringing meals. It was a pretty great organization, and they really took care of us for a week while we were out there. That's really excellent. And now if anyone is uh, in in that position where that might um, apply to them, what, how would they get in touch with said organization? Yeah, if you Google for Domus Pashas Family Respite, uh, you'll, it'll come right up. Uh, Domus Pashas is D-O-M-U-S-P-A-C-I-S, two words. Um, I think their website is domuspashas.com or .net or something like that. But Domus Pashas Family Respite, uh, you Google for it, their website will come up. And you can actually nominate families. Um, so they can't cold call because of the tax laws. They can't call people and offer their services. But you can nominate someone. So if you have a family member or a friend or somebody who's been through something like this, you can nominate them through the organization and, uh, you know, if they have availability and the dates work and their doctor sign off on it and everything works out logistically, uh, they'll try and find you a, a nice vacation home uh, in the mountains of Colorado and kind of give you a getaway. That's great. And now um, the other thing that uh, I think that you were um, had set up uh, before, you, before you went away was a, um, a fantasy league for people who want to contribute to uh, something, but I'll let you explain it because you're probably better. Yeah, so we're doing a Cancer Sucks Auto New uh, League this year. So basically, uh, we've got a 12-team Auto New League. Uh, one spot has already been given to somebody who donated $2,500 in order to get into the league. Um, but there are 11 or 10 spots remaining besides that guy and myself. Um, and so the people who donate uh, the most money to our uh, Team Dave team and training uh Website. We basically, my wife and I are running a half marathon with some coworkers of her to raise money for team and training, which is an arm of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, and so, the people who give the most money to that organization uh, will be offered spots in this auto new league, and uh, we'll play fantasy baseball uh, to raise money to kick cancer's butt. And uh, you've effectively come out of fantasy baseballing retirement for this. Right. I haven't played fantasy baseball in like ten years, so I've. Uh, going from no fantasy to the most extreme, in-depth fantasy league you could possibly imagine uh, with an auto news league. But, uh, you know, I think it'll be fun, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting to meet some people who uh, otherwise I wouldn't ever get to meet and play in a fantasy league with some people who really want to, you know, take a dent out of uh, uh, the pain of cancer for other people. And if someone's interested in, in uh, participating in that, how would they how would they go about that? Uh, probably the easiest way to do it is just uh, to search Fangraphs for the Cancer Sucks uh Auto New League, that post should come up, um, and there's a link to the Team Dave uh, page where you can donate to the uh, team and training organization, and then once you put a donation in with your real name, because we need to know that it was actually you that gave, you can't give an honor free for this, but, uh, it, you know, you give a donation and then send an email uh, to the email that's included in the post and say, hey, you know, I donated, and I'm interested in being in the league, 
And, uh, you know, if you're one of the uh, 11 highest donators, then I'll send you an email and we'll set up a draft time and we'll all do a fantasy league together. All right. Okay, uh, now with that out of the way, uh, let's turn our attention to baseball. I don't know the degree to which you've been able to uh, to keep up during your travel. I know that uh, you were secretly making um, you were making clandestine visits to our our uh, site message board, um, clandestine uh, that is, so that your wife would not see you. Um, uh, yes, she, when she would go to bed in Colorado, you know, skiing is a pretty tiring exercise. So, you know, and we were. Uh, on a different time zone and suffering from jet lag, she would go to bed a little bit early, and then I would uh, was unable to resist the the lures of chiming in and giving my opinion on how the fight should go while I was on vacation. Yes, you, yes, you absolutely did that. Uh, now let's talk about some things that happened though most most recently, and I don't know. I, I wrote about this yesterday. I th- I think it probably, in terms of words per notable event, uh, this has been one of the most notable stories of the off season, and that's the uh, Theo Epstein compensation saga. Uh, it was sort of resolved uh, yesterday. The Red Sox got Chris Carpenter, uh, that's 11th ranked prospect per Mark Hewlett in the Cubs system, Chris Carpenter, um, from the Cubs, and a player to be named later for another player to be named later, and I guess um, Theo Epstein. Um, Carpenter has a pretty good fastball and com- command issues. I mean, did this work out basically how you how you thought it might, you know, or did did one team get, uh, you know, shafted in the process? <laughs> well, I don't know that you can really get shafted when you, uh, you know, are trying to work out compensation for a front office executive because there's not really a established market value for what a guy like Theo Epstein is worth. I mean, we've got like a couple Lupinello got traded uh, for Randy Wynn in the minor league year a couple years ago, but um, you know, there's not a long history we can look at and say, oh, well, this is the going rate of you know, dollar per war for a GM, so that team really overpaid. We we don't really know um, kind of how these things get settled, and that's why it took so long. I do think it's interesting that these teams basically decided that they just didn't want to be done with this. They both swapped players the name later, kind of like to keep the saga ongoing, almost like they enjoyed just having the name in the headlines for a long time, and they just don't want the story to die. So they're like, well, we'll just both swap players the name later, and then we can still be talking about the story in July. Now, didn't they? Isn't that the real reason for that? Probably just because of forty-man issues. Uh, you know, it's possible that they just decided, hey, look, you know, we can't agree on the names right now. It's not that big a deal. Uh, we've got a list of three or four guys that we both like, uh, you know, from each organization. And we'll kind of see how it plays out. Like, if Theo guides the Cubs to the World Series, we get the best guy on the list. And if he gets them to the playoffs, he gets the second best guy. If they lose 100 games, they get the worst guy. And so it could be one of those setups. Okay. Now, is this is this something that you see happening in the future Perhaps with more frequency. We know that, or, or we we could probably posit that um, general managers and front officers have become perhaps a more integral part of the game, or more conspicuously integral, certainly to fans. Do you see a future in 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 GMs being treated um, more as commodities like this, and more as tradable commodities? I don't think so. Mainly because what really makes something uh, valuable and that you'd want to pay for it is the scarcity. If you can't get that thing somewhere else, then you need to pay for it in order to get it. Um, but I would say that the smart baseball executive is not exactly scarce right now. I mean, the Astros were able to hire Jeff Lou away from the Cardinals, uh, division rival, without any kind of compensation. And Lou now is in the process of totally remaking the Astros front office. And, uh, you know, 
giving some hope to that fan base and saying, hey, look, we're going to join the 21st century and we're going to do things in a new way, and it didn't cost them a player. And so, you know, there's guys like Rick Hall and Fab Levine and a lot of highly thought-out executives who could interview for a GM position next winter without requiring any kind of compensation. So I don't necessarily know that we're going to see the poaching of GMs who are established name value guys. I think the Cubs situation was a little bit unique in that, uh, you know, the Cubs had a new owner and they were really trying to uh, make a splash and Theo was a, a big name guy who they could really kind of sell to the fan base. But in most, most instances, I don't think the ownership really needs to sell a new GM to the fan base. And so I don't know that they'll need to give up assets of either players or cash or whatever it is in order to pick GMs from other organizations when there's so many smart young assistant GMs out there just looking for a promotion. All right. So, so it's not going to happen. Do you think that, do you think though that Theo Epstein in the time that he's been with the Cubs has done something that, uh, you know, that essentially like what we might call a replacement level GM, like, like Rick Hahn or Thad Levine. I mean, they're talented, but they're freely available. Has Theo Epstein done something that those guys wouldn't have done or, or wouldn't have been able to have done because they lacked a certain managerial gravitas? Uh, I think maybe not pursuing Prince Fielder. That's maybe the one thing you could say. Like, Theo Epstein had the ability to come in and tell Chicago, hey, look, we know we need a first baseman. We know there's this really good first baseman on the market who doesn't have anywhere to go and kind of wants to come here and is making overtures about wanting to play in Chicago but we're not going to sign him because I've got a plan and you need to trust the plan because I've got two World Series and I've done this before. And Theo kind of has the ability to tell the fan base, look, we're not spending money, but it's not because we're cheap. It's because we have a plan. Where if you had hired a guy that the casual fan had never heard of, like a Rick Hahn, and he had come in and tried to put the same plan in place, there might be more suspicion that maybe the new owner was just coming in and slashing payroll and uh, not going to spend any money. And, you know, there would be a little more suspicion of that. But with Theo, you know, he's got the built-in cachet where he can say, look, trust me, and, uh, you know, we don't have to be spendy and, you know, go find splashy free agents. We're going to rebuild this thing from the ground up, and the fan might give him a little bit more benefit of the doubt. Okay, a pair of DH-ish signings, uh, I guess interesting in their own right and maybe for other ways not as interesting. Uh, Raul Banya signed with the Yankees, I think for $1.1 million, probably utilized, or hopefully for the Yankees' defense, uh, he will be exclusively utilized as a, a platoon DH. Um, well, I guess first of all, is that how he'll be utilized? And second of all, you know, what sort of value does he provide over any of the other possible candidates? Yeah, I mean, I think Abadie will end up just listening with Jones at DH. There's some note uh, that they find him instead of Johnny Damon for his increased defensive abilities over Damon, which is kind of hilarious if you've ever seen Raul Abadie play defense. But I think that was more to do with his arm. So Johnny Damon can't throw, and everyone knows Johnny Damon can't throw. So, uh, you know, if you stick him in the outfield, teams can really exploit that and run on him and, you can't really use Damon as like a late inning guy in the outfield if someone gets hurt because then all of a sudden you have this guy out there with basically no arm. Uh, with the Banyas out there, his routes are terrible, his range is bad. Uh, he's a uh, definite negative on defense, but it's not so bad that it's like, you know, Brett Gardner gets pinch hit for and you put a Banyas out there in left field to the ninth inning, that if there's a runner on third base, the entire stadium's going to cringe. So, um, you know, I think that maybe they prefer to Banyas a little bit more for his uh, ability to throw the ball than for any kind of ability to cover ground, but I do think he'll spend... 95% of his time at DH in a platoon with Andrew Jones. Now, what are the chances that um, two players to whom I have uh, an irrational attachment, Russell Brannion and, and Jorge Vasquez, uh, what are the chances they see any time, I guess, you know, at the major league level this year? And probably that would be a DH with the Yankees. 
Yeah, I think Brandon's probably more in a fight with Eric Chavez. So basically the Yankees now have two bad back third base slash first base uh, left-handed hitters who can't stay healthy and are only reasonably useful when they are healthy anyway. So I think uh, Brandon and Chavez are kind of depth for each other. If Chavez, you know, gets hurt again, then Brandon might take that roster spot for a little while. Um, I think he's more Chavez insurance than he is Abanya's insurance. And uh, Jorge Vasquez, I think, is but he's 29. Uh, he's not really in the Yankees' future, and he's not the kind of guy that they should be playing on a regular basis. Well, I think he's interesting. He has excellent power. I, I don't know about anything else he can do. Uh, Manny Ramirez. Right. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say he has excellent power, and that's all he can do. So, right. you know, if you like one-tool players, then, uh, you know, he's one. That's a better tool than, than uh, you know, all the other things being replacement level when you rather have power than speed. Sure, but I'm not sure if you're the Yankee, you need to be picking among one tool. No, it's true. If, just a, a brief detour here. A lot of, uh, of course, this is sort of the season of prospect lists. Um, Baseball America released theirs yesterday, uh, their top 100 prospect list. Uh, Keith Laws produced his, uh, Kevin Goldstein at BP, Jonathan Mayo at MLB.com. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, our Mark Hewlett's isn't uh, far behind I've seen Billy Hamilton's name on on every list, I believe, uh, some of them in the sort of top half. And I'm curious about him. From the reports I've read, even from the, even from the, the publications that rank him highly, his glove is uh, maybe questionable at shortstop. He's got strikeout problems, and he's unlikely to develop any power. So really, the skill is the speed and then some fielding ability, but probably not enough to stick it short. Is it... What, because these are generally smart people who are ranking him, what is it that they see? I mean, is it just plus tool that equals a top 100 ranking? Well, I think the speed is one of the things that we've seen is uh, generally overrated in prospect circles. If you look back at most of the busts, especially the highly rated busts on, you know, the all-time Baseball America top 100 lists, it's guys like Corey Patterson and these guys who are uh, elite speedsters who do enough other things to make you dream that if the rest of those tools come around, they could really be interesting. So it's Ruben Rivera and Ruben Mateo and all these guys who are, they run really well, and that gets you excited, and then you start wish-casting on everything else, and those guys don't turn out as well as often uh, as maybe Baseball America and some other prospect people would like them to turn out. Uh, Hamilton does fit into that mold, but I do think there's also something in the fact of, um, you know, shortstop the bar is pretty low. So if Hamilton could figure out how to stick a shortstop, and I think he's too young to say for sure that he can't, uh, he doesn't have to hit a lot to be a good shortstop or to even be a useful shortstop. Um, we look at a guy like E. Gordon, who's, you know, kind of similar in that he, he is never going to get for any power. He might not ever hit a home run in his life. Uh, a tiny little guy who runs well and can play shortstop well enough at the major league level, at least early in his career. Um, you know, he's already in the majors at, uh, what, 21, 22 years old. Um, and he could be the, the Dodgers starting shortstop this year. And so there's just such a low bar for offensive need at shortstop. And if you can play shortstop at all, and then you can also butt your way on base and steal some bases, you can actually be a reasonably effective player. I mean, Elvis Andres is essentially a three-win player, and he had no bat at all as a teenager. He's developed into a pretty patient guy who draws walks and gets some value on the base pass, but Andres is not a guy who's going to hit for any power. And, you know, he's a, you know one of the best five or ten best shortstops in baseball right now. What is the what is the reason for the relative optimism concerning uh, Gordon um, or you know Billy Hamilton and then and then you you mentioned D. Gordon before him, but maybe the lack of same optimism for 
a player like Andrelton Simmons in the Braves organization, um, who is by all accounts a plus defender, um, has uh, pretty good speed and excellent contact abilities. But uh, is it just the fact that his first name is hard to spell? <laughs> that could be part of it. I do think there's something to the fact of uh, these guys who are super fast and get really high stolen base totals get noticed. So if you're just a plus club guy who doesn't hit, it's pretty easy for uh, managers or scouts to just say, future utility infielder. He has one ability, it's defense. There's no offensive value there whatsoever. We're just going to label him as the next, uh, you know, middle infield backup. Uh, Ray Sanchez. Yeah, right. Well, Ray Sanchez is actually a pretty fantastic defender. Uh, John McDonald? I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, John, Mc, John McDonald's nice. Like, you see a guy who's just glove and nothing else. Adam Everett, uh, you know, this kind of player, scouts generally just toss them into the, um, you know, backup shortstop mold and say there's no hope for his offense. Uh, that's not all that valuable. But if you have, you know, that plus-plus speed where they could say, okay, if this guy figured out how to walk, he could maybe turn himself into... Um, you know, Luis Castillo or something where, you know, he had no power whatsoever, but he drew so many walks and was able to steal 60 bases a year that he was an offensive plus, uh, at least for a middle infielder. Um, and the defense was good enough to make him a, you know, a valuable starting player for 10 years. I think that one plus tool, the, the extreme speed and stolen base ability kind of gets scouts dreaming. And maybe they shouldn't dream as much on these guys or they should dream a little bit more on the glove guys. But I think the reason for it is they can say, okay, if he can figure out how to get on base, He's got enough speed and enough stolen base ability to not be a total zero offensively. All right. Uh, that's great stuff. Now, uh, the, the other player I was going to get to, though, um, it, it's curious, signing perhaps was the, uh, although the A's have a tradition of doing this, was, was Oakland signing Emmanuel Ramirez to a minor league contract. Um, wait, wait, wait. We're, we're segueing from minor league shortstops. No, no, that's not the segue. The segue goes back to Ibanez. I had... I, I really had I, I had framed it nicely. I said two DHs. I mean, oh, look at different sides of the country. I, I thought it was pretty nice. We're going back to that right now, Cameron. The other thing was a parenthetical statement. In fact, I I believe I started off by saying this is a detour. I said let's okay, take. So we, we had a rabbit trail. Rabbit, you have your own country term for it. You know, I don't know what you do in North Carolina there. You know, I can't I can't speak to that. I just saying there was a detour. Now we're back. Now we're back on on okay. the on the trail. Okay, this is going to be the first podcast in history that has transitioned from Billy Hamilton to Manny Ramirez. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah. It's happening right now. They, now, the A's do have a sort of tradition of signing this. They, they did it with Frank Thomas, I feel like. I don't know what that was now, maybe four or five years ago, and I think maybe Dave yeah. Justice before yep. that. Um, there was also another giant person in there that they signed and played decently for them. Piazza, maybe. Jermaine Dye. Jermaine Dye. Did they have Piazza? Yeah, they definitely had Mike Piazza. Or okay, online. I've, so, I've banished that from my memory. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how long it lasts. Uh, luckily, uh, I, we perform these podcasts right next to the Internet, so we can figure that out uh, post-haste. But the Manny Ramirez signing, I, first of all, just in terms of like a straight baseball transaction, how does it strike you? And second of all, could you just mention briefly what the sort of requirements are? Does he have to be on the 40-man to begin fulfilling the, uh, his 50-day suspension? No, he does not. So uh, they're going to leave him as a minor league contract, I believe, and he'll be suspended for the first 50 games of the season. 
Uh, he won't be able to work out with the team. They can't sign him to the minor league teams. They can't sign him to Sacramento just to play for 50 games. Uh, I think he's going to join Sacramento in mid-May or so after the 50-game suspension is up. Um, and then assuming he does well enough in Sacramento and shows that he can still hit a little bit, and that's essentially a spring training, then they'll uh, call him up at the majors, put him on a 40 game roster at that point. Um, and uh, so essentially a suspended player um, – is kind of treated a little bit differently. So he's not going to, you know, they're not going to have to designate someone for assignment in order to get him on the roster or anything like that. Um, and he's not going to start earning his paycheck until uh, he gets called up. So it's not going to cost him any money for them to stash him for six weeks or however long it takes for the suspension to last. Um, and then a couple more weeks down in spring, you know, in, in Sacramento will basically be in spring training. So probably look at the beginning of June before you see Manny Ramirez in the maze uniform. Um, why they did it. I think Billy Dean's comment was we couldn't come up with a reason not to do it. Uh, you know, there's a chance he can still hit, and they need hitting, um, you know, and for the league minimum, uh, you know, it's not like they're going to get anyone else for $300,000 who could help them. So um, I do think that it's a little curious that a team that is obviously rebuilding and going young has signed a guy who is not who is not young and is not going to help with a rebuild. And no matter how good Manny hits, it's not like he's going to build up any kind of trade value. He's still going to be looked at as poison by the other 29 teams in baseball, and you're never going to be able to trade him in July for anything of of value, so they're basically just hoping that Andy helps them win an extra game or two um, with his bat and say, okay, well, for $300,000, we padded our window to a little bit. Well, so you don't think that he would be any sort of trade commodity? You don't think if he if he is a good citizen uh, for his 50 games and then you know plays a couple minor league games, comes up and hits well, you don't think that he's, uh, you know, uh, maybe like uh, some organization's 10th overall prospect or something? No, not at all. I think with Manny's baggage and his history of uh, um, mediocre behavior and the fact that he's a DH only, so you can't trade him in the National League, so you're stuck trading him in the American League. Uh, you're probably looking at just teams who need a DH at that point. So you may be looking at like three or four teams who could possibly even be interested. In and then you whittle that down to the teams that you want to deal with Manny's antics. How big an upgrade would he be over whatever other DH is available in midseason who is going to cost, you know, a C-minus prospect and isn't going to come with all the baggage? Uh, does that team have a guy who hasn't played with Manny before? If they do, do the guys who played with Manny, are they still mad at him, like Kurt Schilling and some of these other guys from Boston who feel like they like he quit on them when he was there? Um, they variables for you to actually have any kind of bidding war. You, you'd be lucky that if Manny plays well at age 40, uh, you might find one team that's interested in giving you, you know, some low A ball reliever with command problems or something like that. But that's not something that you uh, are really going to say, okay, this is worth, you know, signing Manny for a couple months and dealing with all the PR headache. So that in a couple months, if he plays well, we can get some reliever with bad command. Okay, another. Um, all right, that's fine. The, the Manny situation, I, I feel comfortable with what you said there. Uh, I'm done with that. The next thing is the AJ Burnett. Uh, um, well, trade, I, I guess it was technically, although it's, um, I think the two minor leaguers going from Pittsburgh to the Yankees um, did not necessarily register on a lot of uh, prospect analysts' radar. Um, the the Yankees pick up all, I think maybe 20 million of the remaining 33 million dollars left in AJ Burnett's contract. So the Pirates essentially get AJ Burnett uh, for two years for 13 million dollars, so six and a half. Um, Average annual value. I assume he's worth that. You know, is this uh, was the trade worth it? You know, for the Yankees who, admittedly, have uh, you know, still have five starting pitchers at this point, uh, and also for the Pirates who who get a player who probably be more, worth more than his contract. 
Yeah, I think it's a deal that makes sense for both sides. I mean, the Yankees didn't have innings to give A.J. Burnett, and if there's one thing A.J. Burnett can offer you at this point in the spirit, it's innings. Uh, you know, and there's a little bit outside there. His peripherals are significantly better than VRA. Um, so, you know, maybe he can turn into a two- or three-win pitcher again for Pittsburgh in an easier league, in an easier park, in a smaller media environment, all those changes, scenery kind of things. Um, but, you know, his most obvious kind of quality at this point is durability, and that doesn't really matter. It's a sixth starter just hanging around waiting for someone to get hurt. So, um, you know, I think with the Yankees, there wasn't really a roster spot for him. They had believed in the carry him. He was a little bit of a distraction. So saving themselves $13 million made sense. You know, you, the Yankees certainly didn't need a $13 million backup starter. Um, and for the Pirates, you know, they can't get anyone to sign with them because they're the Pirates. They tried to get Edwin Jackson. He, he wouldn't go there. They tried to get Roy Oswald. He wouldn't go there. So, you know, by trading for a guy who has no choice, uh, they are able to acquire a player who, you know, might not be an all-star, but uh, kind of similar to the Derek Lowe transaction where the uh, Indians said, okay, we might not be able to lure pitchers here, but we can get Derek Lowe for $5 million for one year to fill out our rotation. I think this is one way for some of these franchises who are not uh, perennial winners and, you know, the top choices in terms of uh, beautiful cities and uh, awesome weather climates. Um, you know, this is how teams can acquire talent is trade to some of these guys who uh, don't really, they don't have no trade clauses and they don't really have control over where they go. You know, that's interesting. With regard to Pittsburgh, do you think that the their lack of ability to sign um, high-profile free agents, I mean, obviously they're not going after everyone, so that's part of it, but do you, do you think it's about the city itself, or, or do you think it's a question of a sort of, um, I mean, of just record over the last three, five, or in the case of the Pirates, you know, like 20 years? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a mixture of both. I mean, I think any losing team, uh, veteran free agents are generally going to avoid because these teams aren't looking at, or these free agents aren't looking at, you know, projection systems and young talents and farm system rankings. They're looking and saying, ah, every time I play the Pirates, they're terrible. I don't want to play. So they just assume that bad teams will continue to be bad. Um, but I think there's also something to the fact that uh, they're geographical uh, preferences. So a lot of guys will say, I want to stay on one coast or the other. We've seen Coco Chris repeatedly sign with West Coast teams. Um, because he prefers the West Coast. Hiroki Kuroto uh, essentially said he only wanted to play for the Dodgers until the Dodgers finally just said, we don't want you, and then he had to go east. But uh, there's people who say, okay, I only want to play on the West Coast. I only want to play on the East Coast. Uh, Burnett, apparently, uh, there's a report out there, whether it's true or not, that they turned down a trade to the Angels because he didn't want to play on the West Coast. Some of these guys have geographical preferences that keep them in you know, uh, some spot or another, but I've never heard anyone express a geographical preference to play in Pittsburgh. <laughs> There's just not that many people who are like, oh, yeah, I grew up with beautiful memories of the Steel City, and, you know, I, my wife loves it there, and I really want to move to Pittsburgh. Uh, there are people who really want to move to New York for whatever reason or move to California for whatever reason or move to Florida for tax reasons. Um, but there's just not that many players out there who are willing to take a big discount to move to, to, move to Pennsylvania. Well, to the... Um scads of major leaguers who listen to this podcast, uh, I, I have not necessarily been, I have not been to Pittsburgh, but from what I understand, um, it is a beautiful city. and uh, has. A, I, I have been to Pittsburgh, and I will say it's uh, underrated. I, I enjoyed my time in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I, I hear beautiful things about it. It's a beautiful park with beautiful scenery. And then, of course, yeah. the Andy Warhol Museum, uh, which is... Uh, which will, Baseball players are known for their love of Andy Warhol. That's a yeah, it's a fact. We know that that's a fact. <laughs> okay, all right, Dave Cameron. I asked you about all the baseball things I could think of, um, so I'm gonna let you go. But it's listen, it's uh, a pleasure you're having on the pub. We'll get you. Uh, I guess we'll get you on Monday again. So that's, that's pretty clear. I, ho- I yeah. hope some things happen in baseball between now and then. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds reasonable. But it is uh, it is nice yeah. to have you back, and and uh, thanks for joining us again. All right, thanks, Carson. All right, that's Dave Cameron, our managing editor. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.